Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom Hartman. Honored to do so. Is every billionaire a policy failure? What should marginal tax rates be on your 10 millionth and first dollar? Or maybe your 100 millionth and first dollar? Should there be a wealth tax, as Elizabeth Warren has boldly suggested? Should antitrust enforcement and the estate tax again become mainline political issues? Economic policy by Twitter handle or even 240 character tweet can make us nervous. 240 characters seems dicey. Heck, doing it in eight minutes in between commercial breaks seems tough enough. But the question has been raised. Should there be aggressive action to address wealth inequality? And to be clear, yes, I said wealth inequality, not only income inequality, most of the inequality is not because somebody earns a high salary, it's because of entrenched, including inherited wealth. This is a question of many dimensions. The big question is should we treat wealth inequality as the big question. Should that be something that every candidate for president, at least every candidate in the Democratic primary, is taking on squarely? And if so, how should they be taking it on? Or should they hide from it a little bit because it is uncomfortable? It is particularly uncomfortable when you have to raise the federal maximum from donors around the country. It isn't fun to go to your local university club, your local art club, your local Mac club, your local country club. It's not fun to go to your local boardroom for the corporation, the Fortune 500 company that happens to be based in your big city and your state. And say, you know what? We're going to go squarely after wealth inequality. And to do that, we are going to do something about antitrust enforcement. We're going to do something about the estate tax. We're going to do something about marginal tax rates. We're going to do something about corporate regulation. It's not fun to do that. And then afterwards, and by the way, $2,500 a piece from you and your spouse for the primary and the general and from your friends, because I'm running for president. 
question, though, has been raised. Should it be a central question? And there's lots of dimensions. The moral question of haves versus the have way too littles. The economic volatility question. Greater inequality indicates a lack of resiliency and has historically preceded crashes. And also the stress question, per Richard Wilkinson. The impact on crime, the impact on life expectancy. As we know from Wilkinson's research, you can read his book or you can see his TED Talk. A country, once it already is wealthy to some degree, doesn't get healthier, doesn't get happier when it gets a little wealthier. But it gets a lot unhealthier, it gets a lot unhappier as wealth disparities grow, as income disparities in his research, as those grow. Lots of dimensions, but I just want to talk about democracy, and I want to respond to a guy named Tom Nichols. I'd also like to respond to you. The call-in number here is 202-808-9925. My name is Jefferson Smith. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm going to be sitting in this week, and this is a big thing I want to tackle with. It is an honor to be here and to guide our conversation during these days while Tom is away. And it's been a little bit since I've sat in. Thankfully, Tom has been healthy and present, and this topic has been building up. Presidential candidate after presidential candidate has announced, and a number of them have made pretty bold pronouncements. I would say the boldest I have seen, even bolder than trying to go back to post-Eisenhower, even during Eisenhower, even pre-Eisenhower marginal tax rates, was in fact a wealth tax, and not just at the time of death, which is what an inheritance tax or an estate tax is. It is putting the question on the table. A lot of dimensions, but I, for a moment, want to open this up just by talking about democracy. The idea that we decide together how things should go, rather than having power controlled merely by inherited power, or merely property ownership, or merely control of the strongest and most numerous weaponry. The idea that human beings should get together and figure stuff out. The idea that I think is the most virtuous idea that gives us any excuse to be proud and the strongest excuse to be proud of our nation. So not just the Wilkinson, Robert Reich, Joseph Stiglitz, Naomi Klein, Thomas Piketty space, not just sort of the variety of economic questions relative to wealth inequality, but just the decision-making question, just the democracy question, just the Larry Lessig, Nancy McLean, Ari Berman space, democracy. Get him Tom Nichols. He's a somewhat famous former Republican, never Trumper, college professor. I think he's now at the uh, Navy War College, maybe. And I bring him up not because he is the most important guy in the world. None of us are. But because the exchange is emblematic of a view, of one view within a progressive 60%. And that is what it's going to take to save democracy. To save democracy, we're going to have to have, I wouldn't call it a small-D Democratic consensus, but we're going to need a small-D Democratic supermajority. And I would say Tom Nichols lives within that supermajority. Twitter question to Tom Nichols, professor, author. says, don't we fear that concentration of wealth will erode democracy? Tom Nichols' answer, that's already happening. But I do not grieve that Bill Gates is fantastically more wealthy than I am. If you want to reform the political system, I'm with you. If you want to gripe about rich people, 
Count me out. So political reform, yes. You want to talk automatic voter registration. You want to talk vote by mail plus voting centers. You want to talk about overturning Citizens United. You want to talk about public financing of elections. You can get it done in your town. That could happen in literally 100 cities around the United States without Congress having to do something about it. And it would transform the political economy fundamentally. Star voting or approval voting or ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting or reforming the Electoral College. So, yeah, okay, the Tom Nichols School of Thought, we can talk all about that stuff. Political reform, yes. But gripe about rich people, count me out. And here's my response to Tom Nichols and how I want to cue up some of this conversation, my opening remark for this conversation on democracy is that reformed democracy will be necessary to reform the economy. My question, though, is will a malformed economy make efforts to erode democracy more likely or even inevitable? It happened during the dawn of the Industrial Age. It's why the progressive movement was necessary. It's why the progressive media, I didn't say liberal media, it wasn't exactly, but why progressive media was necessary. It is happening with the dawn of the information age. This is what undergirds the favorite line ascribed to Justice Brandeis. We may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we may not have both. Because even if we do the Tom Nichols stuff, Rupert Murdoch can buy a TV network. Sinclair can buy 173 local TV stations. iHeartMedia, formerly Clear Channel, can turn off the progressive or liberal radio formats up and down the country, up and down the West Coast and across the country. Apple thinks it can charge 50% of publishing fees from content makers. This is what undergirds the Brandeis principle. So Mr. Nichols, we don't need to gripe. We don't need to whine or complain. We need to act, to organize, to make change, to discuss, to write, to build institutions, not for purpose of harming an enemy, but because our liberation is bound together. Hat tip, Lilla Watson. Our book club selection today is Raghuram Rajan. It's titled The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. This is from the preface. We're surrounded by plenty. Humanity has never been richer as technologies of production have improved steadily over the last 250 years. And it's not just the developed countries that have grown wealthier. Billions across the developing world have moved from stressful poverty to a comfortable middle-class existence in the span of a generation. Income is more evenly spread across the world than at any other time in our lives. For the first time in history, we have it in our power to eradicate hunger and starvation everywhere. Yet even though the world has achieved economic successes that would have been unimaginable even a few decades ago, some of the seemingly most privileged workers in developed countries are literally worried to death. Half a million more middle-aged, non-Hispanic white American males died between 1999 and 2013 than if their death rates had followed the trend of other ethnic groups. The additional deaths were concentrated among those with a high school degree or less, and largely due to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. To put these deaths in perspective, it's as if 10 Vietnam Wars were simultaneously taking place, not in some faraway land, but in homes in small-town and rural America. In an era of seeming plenty, a group that once epitomized the American dream seems to have lost hope. 
The anxieties of the moderately educated middle-aged white male in the United States are mirrored in other rich developed countries in the West, though perhaps with less tragic effects. The primary source of worry seems to be that moderately educated workers are rapidly losing, or are at risk of losing, good middle-class employment. And this has grievous effects on them, their families, and the communities they live in. It is widely understood that job losses stem from both global trade and the technological automation of old jobs. Less well understood is that technological progress has been the more important cause. Nonetheless, as public anxiety turns to anger, radical politicians see more value in attacking imports and immigrants. They propose to protect manufacturing jobs by overturning the liberal rules-based post-war economic order, the system that has facilitated the flow of goods, capital, and people across borders. There is both promise and peril in our future. The promise comes from new technologies that can help us solve our most worrisome problems like poverty and climate change. Fulfilling it requires keeping borders open so that these innovations can be taken to the most underdeveloped parts of the world, even while attracting people from foreign lands to support aging rich country populations. The peril lies not just in influential communities not being able to adapt and instead impeding progress, but also in the kind of society that might emerge if our values and institutions do not change as technology disproportionately empowers and enriches some. Every past technological revolution has been disruptive, prompted a societal reaction, and eventually resulted in societal change that helped us get the best out of technology. Since the early 1970s, we've experienced the information and communications technology revolution, the ICT revolution. It built on the spread of mass computing made possible by the microprocessor and the personal computer, and now includes technologies ranging from artificial intelligence to quantum computing, touching and improving areas as diverse as international trade and gene therapy. The effects of the ICT revolution have been transmitted across the world by increasingly integrated markets for goods, services, capital, and people. Every country has experienced disruption, punctuated by dramatic episodes like the global financial crisis in 2007-2008 and the accompanying Great Recession. We are now seeing the reaction in populist movements of the extreme left and right. What has not happened yet is the necessary societal change, which is why so many despair of the future. We are at a critical moment in human history when wrong choices could derail human economic progress. This book is about the three pillars that support society and how we get to the right balance between them so that society prospers. Two of the pillars I focus on are the usual suspects, the state and markets. Many forests have been consumed by books on the relationship between the two, some favoring the state and others markets. It is the neglected third pillar, the community, the social aspects of society that I want to reintroduce into the debate. When any of the three pillars weakens or strengthens significantly, typically as a result of rapid technological progress or terrible economic adversity like a depression, the balance is upset and society has to find a new equilibrium. The period of transition can be traumatic, but society has succeeded repeatedly in the past. The central question in this book is how we restore the balance between the pillars in the face of ongoing disruptive technological and social change. I will argue that many of the economic and political concerns today across the world, including the rise of populist nationalism and radical movements on the left, can be traced to the diminution of community. The state and markets have expanded their powers and reached in tandem, and left the community relatively powerless to face the full and uneven brunt of technological change. Importantly, the solutions to many of our problems are also to be found in bringing dysfunctional communities back to health 
not in clamping down on markets. This is how we'll rebalance the pillars at a level more beneficial to society and preserve the liberal market democracies many of us live in. The book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter-smooth, whisper-quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. The question that I frame today, the big question, is about wealth disparities. I didn't just say income inequality. I said wealth inequality. Whether it should be taken on as a primary issue in the coming presidential campaign. Should there be bold proposals? Should it be one way that people evaluate the presidential candidate, specifically probably the Democratic nominee of their choice? Or is it something we should be a little careful about? because it can make it a little bit harder to raise the federal maximum. It can make people who are viewed as economic experts cry some complaint in response, want to get your calls. Olga, can you hear me from Concord, California? How you doing? Okay, it's like this. The higher the 1% are privatizing their profits and socializing their losses. And I posit that our country is very socialist and we direct that to the rich. And that's why they're scared of socialism, because they know they're thieves. And they're getting ready to say that, oh, if we have Medicare for all, if we have uh, free education, we're the thieves. Well, they know they're thieves. That's what I have to say. Olga from Congress, thank you so much for listening, and thanks for being with us. Let's go to Tom. Tom from Portland, Oregon. Hey, I know. I've been to Portland before. How you doing, Tom? Good. How are you? Doing well. Glad to hear it. Okay, I've been wanting to get this idea out for a while because I think it's kind of unique. I haven't heard anybody else suggest it. And it's kind of it's a tax reform tied to the minimum wage. So people have been talking about a fifteen dollar minimum wage for a while. The federal minimum wage right now is seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. My proposal that I'd like to see is a new top marginal tax rate that is tied by federal law to the minimum wage. So it would be 100 times the minimum wage would be the top tax rate for individual earners and 200 times for married filing jointly. Love it. So have you done the math on that? I, I, I should probably be able to do it in my head. 100 times, yeah, let's yeah, call it $15 an hour. Go ahead. So right now it's $7.25 an hour, which is the current federal yeah. minimum. That's $15,000 a year. So an individual could make a million and a half before hitting the top tax rate. Now, by the way, here's the big news. The top tax rate, I want to make it double the current top tax rate. Uh -huh. 
current top tax rate is 37%. So this is a new top tax rate of 74%. Yeah. But the wealthy can protect and stay out of that by agreeing to raise the minimum wage. <laughs> if, they, if they raise the minimum wage of 15 bucks, all of a sudden they've, they've right. raised their so marginal tax rate by temp, you know, double almost. Right, so give an example. So 15 bucks an hour, that will make the top married filing jointly six million two hundred forty grand. So they can make up to six million two forty before hitting that top tax rate. And if they agree to even a higher minimum wage, they can make even more before falling into that top rate. So it's a beautiful way to connect the interests of the working poor and understood. The and it will totally change the way they invest, totally change the way CEOs pull money, you know, they'll reinvest. They'll still build wealth, but it'll create a huge middle class again. Well, Tom, thank you so much for the call. By the way, love indexing. I know that that's something only a nerd would say, okay? But I love indexing. And by indexing, all I mean is uh, setting forth not only numbers and saying, well, it'll be this number and that number, but relative to some other thing that can change. So that as inflation changes, as tax rates shift, for instance, there have been other proposals. In fact, my dad used to talk about this proposal. I thought he was, I thought he was a bullshit crazy person. Uh, now I look at it and say, well, that just makes a lot of sense. To make it so uh, some multiplier of low, lowest or average wages within a corporation above some multiplier, the income for the highest paid executive or executives would not be tax deductible. That would be viewed as profit taking rather than a legitimate business expense that requires a tax deduction. And I like it for both those reasons because it starts connecting one thing to the other. And also just because it can stand the test of time. If something changes, the other thing changes naturally. Appreciate it. Martinia from Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Martinia. In Madison, we have an economy model called mutualism. Um, It's much better than socialism in the sense that socialism is a loaded word, Uh, especially when you compare it or couple it with national. Of course, then you get Nazi. But so many people have different interpretations of what socialism is. But mutualism is where both parties or all parties benefit. We work together for our mutual growth and development. And in Madison, we have a lot of uh, worker co-ops. Tom frequently refers to the Isthmus Engineering and Manufacturing. It's a worker co-op. We have Union Cab. We have Nature's Bakery. We have a number of worker cooperatives where people work together and determine their own future. I want to recommend for folks, if you want to look up mutualaidnetwork.org, a woman by the name of Stephanie Rerick started it, and uh, it's growing. It's now global, where people are doing work that they love and making it. Martina, would you be willing, and, and you don't have to, but if you'd be willing, I, I'll give my email address. I'm just Jefferson Smith at Gmail. If you'd be willing to connect me with them, would appreciate it very much. I think figuring out how we can have new ownership structures. I keep trying to do the math on this, and I can't get there without new ownership structures. And if we don't just want mass governmental ownership and tyranny of government rather than tyranny right. of economic oligarchs, we need something new. So much appreciate your call. Absolutely. This is the Martin Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks for being with us. I want to highlight Martina's 
point again, I'll take the next one. The big question of the day is, is every billionaire policy a failure? Should wealth inequality, not just income inequality, be a top priority issue for presidential candidates in the 2020 election and in now the two-year lead-up to that election? Should we take this by the horns or is it not the right time? We've had suggestions, including uh, Tom's suggestion from Portland that the top marginal rate be indexed to be linked to the federal minimum wage. So if the federal minimum wage is raised, well, so would the marginal tax rate, and that might create some connection between, some cahootsing between upper-income people, lower-income people, and thinking about the relationship betwixt those things. There's also a suggestion about new ownership structures, cooperatives. Is that boring? Is that weird? Is that crunchy? Does that seem like stuff that only people in Vermont would care about? Let me say why I don't think it's crunchy. Let me say why I, or, or if it is, it's because it's awesome. That it's not only for Vermonters. It's not only for Madison, Wisconsinites, like our friend Martina. That ultimately, we have to figure out, if we're going to do something about wealth inequality, there are a few options. Maybe there's more than a few, but they can be lumped into a few categories. One of those is by empowering the federal government. Empower Leviathan to take on robber barons. The heavy hand of government to address the fallout of the invisible hand of the not free, but private market. I think though, speaking for myself, that yes, we need a government that does stuff and that keeps bad stuff from happening. But we don't, certainly I don't want power to accrete in any single entity, in any, certainly not in any single person, that no entity, no type of entity should have absolute power. While government is a necessity in thinking about where power will reside, don't want that to have all the power. But having common ownership of stuff that's made that's a way to distribute power, distribute wealth, and to help more boats rise. I think it's the kind of thing that, because it does, it's, it's one of the reasons I think we should have shows like this, to talk about stuff like that, to make them a little more popular, to make them feel a little bit less crunchy, or make the crunchy parts feel part of the mainstream, part of the real stuff, not just for Vermonters, or Portlanders, or Wisconsinites, or Madisonites more specifically. But for human beings, we're trying to figure out how do we harness technology for the benefit of more people and not only for the subjugation of more people. Anyway, that's why I appreciate it. Let's go to Corky. Corky, I've said your name, which means I'm gonna click on this button and we're gonna to talk to you from Rochester, New York. Where'd you go, Corky? Corky, go ahead, Rochester. Yeah, I'm right here. What's up, man? Yeah, everybody's got it all wrong. All you gotta do is leave people alone, protect them, and let them join unions. Okay. Then you don't have to worry about the rich because you get a seat at the table and you talk to the business. Now you decide on a, a wage. And you don't need a minimum wage because the, the union will take care of the, the, you know, the income. Yeah. Now the second point, if you want to help the middle class, is you impose a one-six-tenths of a percent excise tax on Wall Street investments, uh, what they call them, uh, gambling, you know, the high-risk uh, investing. Yeah. 
you know, you don't screw with the middle, the little people. Yeah. You don't tax their contributions. So tax, uh, tax financial transactions and support for unions. One of the questions I have, and I'm not going to really quibble with either of those things. I, I might quibble with the idea, and I might want to hear you. Uh, why don't you actually make your own case on why you think a minimum wage isn't necessary? Because if you have a union, right, the companies will pay up to close to what unions pay. Sure. That's how they, the non-unions get their help. Yeah. I worked at both places, a union and a non-union. Yeah. And when I went from the to the union, from the non-union, it was only a 15 cent an hour difference in pay. Yeah. But after they busted the unions, then there was a dollar, dollar and a half difference in pay. It was a big difference, yeah. And, and, and I, I will say, I think the... Uh, the economic system is a complex and dynamic one. And by that, I mean, there's lots of parts and they are ever changing. It's like the weather. It's hard to predict because there's lots of parts and it's ever changing. Uh, the, uh, the reason why I think a minimum wage is still useful, it's, it's like the flip side of a thing you said. What I heard you say was, well, when the union goes away, that's a bigger deal or that, that you see the ripples even outside the union-based business. I think also, though, when the union negotiators negotiating the contract, having a minimum wage there also changes that negotiation a little bit. They're negotiating in the shadow of that wage, that each of these tinkers can have an impact on the machine. Something I want to pick up that you said, and I want to get to the next call, but something I want to pick up that you said is that I think it is smart as we try to figure out what a progressive movement means, what a pro-democracy movement means. Pick your own word for a pro-humanity movement, whatever that means. That if we fall too much into a trap of taxes good versus the other side of taxes bad, I mean, nobody loves paying taxes. Nobody loves it. You can argue that it is the price of a civilized society, but figuring out how taxation can be more fair, how it can be more pro-human, more pro-social, more pro-democracy, uh, that stuff makes a lot of sense. So I, so I appreciate it. But, and the other thing I want to pick up that you said is how do we uh, build our systems with, again, not only dependent on regulatory structures, but also on human-built structures at the local level, including what the business negotiation with its workers is. But I want to say one more thing about it. The reason I don't think only the industrial model of ownership that is centralized in a few hands and then workers that have the ability to negotiate with those folks, why I don't think that is sufficient is that what about that ownership part? Is if, well, I, I would say it this way. If you think that, the, that wealth inequality is a thing, Having controls on or negotiating uh, mechanism for the wage contracts matters, but it doesn't do much about the wealth. And again, as I said, most of the wealth inequality isn't because LeBron James earns $30 million a year. That's not most of it. That's like a tiny fraction of it. The 2,200 billionaires in the world, I think I'm getting that number roughly right, didn't like make really high wages. And that's how they became the 2,200 billionaires in the world. They didn't make by owning stuff. And then they were able to negotiate contracts, whether those were high-wage contracts or low-wage contracts, but making sure that the marginal benefit beyond whatever that contract was accreted to their benefit, and they were able to accrete vast sums. 
that to me is the central question is how do we feel about that? Should there be limits on that? Do we want, do we think the economy would be better if we had 4,400 billionaires? Because that would demonstrate that there had been more, you know, 2,200 things more that generated a billion dollars in profits, more than that. Or do we want an economic system where more people have control, more people have ownership? And that to me is one of the biggest questions facing the economy. I want to shout out again to all of our sponsors, all of our listeners, all of the local affiliates that run this program and then encourage other folks to participate in it. The big question, as I've said, is about wealth inequality. Here's a sub-question of it, if you want to cue into this, as we have more people, as we think of ourselves as a community that's trying to figure this out together. What have you caught presidential candidates saying that gives you some hope on this question? So I cited a couple things. I cited higher marginal tax rates uttered by somebody who is not constitutionally eligible to be president because she's too young. She said that on CNN. And then Elizabeth Warren, who I think hasn't gotten enough buzz, hasn't gotten enough credit for giving the boldest tax proposal that I've heard in my lifetime, which is actually taxing wealth. The inheritance tax, if nobody had come up with it yet, that would have been the boldest. And maybe the fairest kind of tax there is. Denise from Calumet. Is it Calumet? Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Calumet, Michigan, way up in the Keweenaw County of the very upper thumb of Upper Michigan. Thanks for calling. Hi. I'm wanting to, I wanted to talk about capitalism versus democratic socialism. Yeah. And I think that this country needs a paradigm shift because social, being a democratic socialist, you have the mindset that there's enough for everybody to have a decent life. Where these capitalists you know, I don't care if somebody wants to be a billionaire if they come about it honestly, but coming about it on the backs of the American middle class and the poor is wrong. And they're, they, they just want it all. We just need to shift to everybody. There should be enough for everybody to have a decent life. Don't you think? Yeah. In fact, it, something my wife says a lot is that all the stuff we're taught when we're kids about sharing about being nice to other people, about your community being a good place, all the things that we, when we raise human beings, try to be good human beings, we teach. Somehow, we have now transmogrified a political movement that is trying to either de-teach those lessons or just govern the countries if those, those things don't matter anymore. I mean, if we just had as a basic principle, let's just try to be kind of cool. Let's just try not to be jerks. Let's try to be decent. What would decency mean? If we were just decent, what would that mean? We can't be decent all the time. Sometimes decency means hard things. But what would that mean? And say, this does not seem complicated. It does not, it, it does not seem to need a Thomas Piketty treatise to explain it to us. But somehow, I don't know, it, it, I feel like we're living in, on a foreign planet that I don't understand, Denise. I don't either. It, it doesn't make sense. There's so much greed out there, and it's just so wrong, and there's no such thing as trickle down. Everything trickles up, and I just think we need to shift that paradigm to let's let everybody have their share to have a decent life. Denise, thanks for being a part of this network. Thanks for being a part of this community on Free Speech TV out in Calumet. Thanks. Zach in North Hollywood. What's on your mind? Good to be with you again, Jeff. Two quick points. Your screener said to try to stay focused, and I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 2015, this stuck in my mind. In 2015, Tom had a young man on his show. It sounded like he was about 22 years old. And somebody sent him in with a talking point that said, when Wall Street manages money, it grows. And that is a true statement. Even as progressive as I am, 
I realize that is a true statement. But the tagline is, what they don't tell you, is it doesn't wick out into the economy. It travels, that money, profit, that money travels in closed circuits. To amplify that a little bit, so you know about the bet, the bet that Warren Buffett made, and he, he bet hedge fund managers say, I'll bet any of you that over, I think it was a 10-year window, you can't beat an index fund, that you can't beat, you can't beat just a random selection of what stocks are doing. And a, a, a billionaire, well thought of uh, hedge fund manager said, oh, I can beat the market over 10 years, took the bet. I forget what they bet. Bottom uppers. And they and and he lost the bet. Buffett won the bet. That it turns out even that basic idea that Wall Street manages money, it grows. Actually, no. Actually, most money managers lose to the market. What grows the American economy? What grows is the population. What grows is innovation. What grows is invention. And that money management game sometimes is useful. Other times is about capturing wealth, not growing it. Thanks for calling, man. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World of the 1950s by William I. Hitchcock. This is from chapter 19, page 475, about three quarters of the way through the book. Republicans of the 1950s knew how to sell a product. They pioneered the use of television advertising in politics, and at their national conventions in 1952 and 1956, they mobilized actors, dancers, acrobats, sports figures, crooners, jugglers, and sword swallowers to infuse their rather dull message of peace and prosperity with some pizzazz. In middle 1960, mid-July 1960, though, as the GOP faithful gathered in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, the same hall in which Ike and Dick had formed their political tandem eight years earlier, the convention planners were running out of ideas. A giant elephant named Koa, on loan from Louisiana, proved to be too big to amble down the aisles of the hall and had to be returned. The torchlight parade of 500 young Republicans had to be canceled due to the fire hazard of their kerosene-soaked rags. Plans to get Henry Fonda into costume as Abraham Lincoln, a role he had played woodenly in the 1939 film Young Mr. Lincoln, were scotched when Fonda turned out to be a Democrat. Half the hotel rooms in Chicago remained empty a few days before the convention. Besides an absence of hoopla, the top Republican leaders had serious worries. A Gallup poll on the eve of the convention showed that since 1952, the Republicans had lost support among business and professional voters, white-collar workers, and farmers, three key demographic groups. And they had made no inroads among skilled and unskilled laborers who favored the Democratic Party by a ratio of four to one. President Eisenhower's personal popularity had masked serious weaknesses in the Republican Party. 
As the Republicans gathered in Chicago, John Kennedy, a junior senator with little international name recognition, led Nixon in the polls by four points. And uh, I should add, Nixon was the vice president, uh, Eisenhower. The press corps, bored to tears by the lack of drama in Republican ranks, worked hard to breathe life into the candidacies of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who might, they earnestly hope, challenge Nixon for the GOP nomination from the left and the right. The Washington Post editorial page noted that both parties inclined toward moderate nominees like Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Nixon, but cautioned that, quote, an excess of moderation can yield a pudding devoid of flavor or shape, end quote, and hoped Goldwater would add a dash of, quote, pepper to the otherwise bland old party's Chicago solemnities, end quote. Indeed, old guard supporters of the dear departed Bob Taft now had a new champion in the ruggedly handsome conservative from the desert west. It was not to be. Goldwater did not seek the nomination and backed Nixon. Rockefeller, whom most veteran Republicans distrusted for his ideological elasticity and his vanity, pressured Nixon to adopt a number of Kennedy-like platform planks on issues such as defense spending, civil rights, health insurance, and housing. Nixon, terrified that a Rockefeller boomlet might snatch away his long-sought prize, caved into these demands before meeting with Rocky in New York on July 22nd three days before the convention opened. Rockefeller, in turn, threw his support to Nixon in a feeble gesture of party unity. In extracting concessions from Nixon on the GOP platform, though, Rockefeller managed to weaken Nixon's case that he and he alone had the toughness to confront Khrushchev on the world stage. The real challenge Nixon faced in taking the leadership of the Republican Party did not come from Goldwater or Rockefeller. It came from Eisenhower. Of course, Ike supported Nixon's presidential bid since Nixon offered the best hope of extending the Eisenhower legacy. But the distance between those two men, which had always been great, never seemed wider than in 1960. Eisenhower had become the world's most respected, most recognized, and most liked man. For all of his apparent political weaknesses and occasional lapses and his mishandled into the U-2 affair, he occupied an unassailable place in the pantheon of great figures of his time. His war service alone would have placed him on history's pedestal, but he followed that with eight years of dignified leadership of a country whose global power had reached unprecedented dimensions. When Eisenhower arrived in Chicago on July 26 to address the Republican convention, over one million Chicagoans lined the streets along his route to the Sheraton Blackstone Hotel. Shouts of joy rang through the miles of well-wishers. We like Ike signs dotted the scene along with hand-painted expressions of thanks to the old warrior. Confetti so dense that it stuck to Ike's moist and beaming face poured from the rooftops. Banners and flags draped every storefront and lampposts in a blaze of red, white, and blue. It was Ike the crowd wanted. A loudspeaker in a truck following the motorcade blared out a popular tune by the Four Knights. I love the sunshine of your smile. The president, visibly moved, told reporters outside the hotel, it's one of the finest crowds I've ever seen. On Tuesday evening, Senator Dirksen, a famously orotund speaker in a profession known for producing magnificent windbags, came to the podium in the amphitheater to introduce the president. Few recalled that eight years earlier, Dirksen had nominated Senator Taft. Anyhow, the book is The Age of Eisenhower by Hitchcock. So I got a question. I gave my email address out. Somebody had a really helpful uh, suggestion for someone to talk to. My Twitter handle is at Jefferson D. Smith. Denny Dimwit is my Twitter avatar. And most people know who that is. I didn't know who that was.
the first words my dad said to me when I was born, I guess I don't even said it to me because at that time I did not speak English. I did not understand it either or any other language. So he said it to my mother who had just gone through an extraordinarily challenging labor. As she's sitting there drenched in sweat, having gone through untold pain, his first words are as he sees his new son come into the world held by the doctor's or nurse's hands. I don't know. I wasn't there. I guess I was there, but I don't really remember. First words out of my dad's mouth. Sure is ugly. Thanks, Pop. Appreciate it. Love you. And it turned out the, the, the labor was very challenging. In my head, when I was growing up, they, uh, I, people said I had a banana head when I was born because the birth was challenging. And it squoze my head. It squoze the word we're going to pretend it is. And, and my dad is, is corrected and said, no, no, it wasn't a banana head. It was a pointy head like Denny Dimwit. And so when he, he, when he said, I sure is ugly, what he, he said, no, it wasn't ugly. You just look like Denny Dimwit. And Denny Dimwit was a cartoon character with a pointy head. So if you're wondering why my Jefferson D. Smith uh, Twitter avatar has pointy headed Denny Dimwit, it's because that is who my dad says I look like upon my birth. This is probably not relevant enough to have spent as much time as I did. Nancy, Excelsior. Oh, hi. Thank you. Say, I'm going to hit this at a different angle, and I'll be as brief as possible. I'm reading a book called The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. He's running for Mm. president as well. Yes. And what I am really beginning to understand, since I'm not an economic person, I work in mental health, is the effect of AI and automation and how that's going to affect our economy and jobs. So I'm learning. (laughs) His thing is universal basic income, right, Nancy? Yeah, 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 and I'm just fascinated by the research that's actually supporting how useful it is, not just from economics and, you know, trickle up, but how it affects people's emotional well-being and, and creates, he, he does, a, you know, he's into humanity first, blah, blah, blah. But um, I was really happily surprised about all the different levels in which that can positively impact people, not just economically, but emotionally, socially, spiritually, and all that. So it's a thought. I was wondering what other people think about it, and I'd love to hear more and get more information about this. He, he said he would uh, pay through it for a VAT tax. I don't know how that works, but I believe economic justice is very, very important. Thank you so much, Nancy. I've not read the book. I must acknowledge, I try to consume books through book jackets and summaries too often, right? And also podcast interviews. Uh, the, my, my defense, other than, other than laziness or being busy or trying to consume lots, is a former professor that I had that says, well, you know, Jeff, most books, most nonfiction or scholarly books are probably better scholarly papers, but because most people don't subscribe to scholarly journals, they turn into books so they can put them on shelves and sell them in airports. Uh, I'm in favor of books, buy books, including Tom Hartman's books. But that's just my excuse for relying on book jackets. So I know Andrew Yang's central points, even though I haven't read his book. UBI, we'll talk about it after the break. If money is happening not from humans, how do humans still pay for stuff? Key question, link to human happiness. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're going to be talking about the big question of the day, which is how the heck are we going to make all this work? You're listening to Tom Hartman. You listen to Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. And joining us right now, our friend Ellen Ratner, Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com, bringing us what's going on. What's going on, Ellen? President Trump is unclear about whether he's going to sign a bill to avoid a government shutdown. 
They said they want, this is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the press secretary, said she wants to see, they want to see, what's in the final piece of legislation. Uh, because they say it's hard to know whether the president is going to sign it or not. Uh, but of course, my guess is that it would be overridden in both in the Senate and the House because they've come to an agreement. But we just don't know at this point. Yeah. And the president hasn't seen the legislation. Of course, it hasn't passed. So we don't know. Um, supposedly, I think it's the House today and the Senate tomorrow. But anyway, that's what's going on with that front. Countdown clock is Friday the 15th. Friday the fifteenth at midnight. Yes. And the and and any uh, any indication of what the vote count might be on this deal? Because if they get oh, and, and whether gosh. or not it, I, and, and, I am not a whip person. I don't count votes. I have no idea. No, and I, I don't, <laughs> I I don't mean within even within pass. yeah within five or ten votes. But just to, it, it, might there be a signal? Does it look like there's enough bipartisan support that it might look like a veto-proof majority if people stuck together? It may look like a veto-proof majority, and of course it would have to be veto-proof in the House and the Senate. Yeah. Uh, so that's a lot of votes, Rob. And, you know, there are some right-wingers that don't approve of this, but they're a very small minority of people. Uh, what, are the, what are the biggest pieces of the deal that you think people ought to know? Well, I think the biggest piece of the deal is that there is some money for the wall, but there's also money for extra beds. Now, it's not the number of beds that the president wants, but it's more beds than the 16,500 or whatever they have currently. Um, but it's not as many as the 52,000 that the president wants. If, so, if, we have the if we have a chance to talk about this again, it, it's interesting that it's, uh, almost all the attention has been around the border when the, when the governmental budget includes so very many more things than that. And, I, and, and when we talk about it again next, it might be interesting to hear, are there any things that have slipped in or slipped out that in previous years might have been the biggest subjects of debate, but this year have not, have not well, merited top-line coverage? Bill, so we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Right? What's next? I mean, okay, what, what else is next? is that it looks like uh, the president's fixer, Manafort, uh, met with they rush his Russian counterpart uh, a few blocks away from Trump headquarters at a very fancy place. And this was uh, during the 2016 campaign. It looks like it happened August 2nd, 2016. Now, a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, they, there's no more news going on and uh, with the special counsel, et cetera. But it does look like this is actually a piece of news that uh, they hadn't pay, paid attention to. Now, the president also tweeted out today, oh, there's no Russian collusion. Well, it looks like the special counsel is grabbing this information. Some of this is leaking out, such as the fact that Manafort met with the Russians during the 2016 campaign in August of 2016. And, and again, maybe this is maybe this is not a helpful question, but the with the with the uh, head of the the Republican head of the Senate committee uh, saying, oh, you know, nothing to see here, no collusion. Uh, the Democrats saying, hey, that, that has not yet been demonstrated. Uh, right. The, it, it seems that the perniciously thin read upon which this president will rest is, well, there is no tape of me having a conversation with Vladimir Putin. Uh, well, it, there may be no tape, but there's a lot of other circumstantial evidence. And the question is whether people turn or not. But a lot of people are expecting a pardon from the president, which he can give. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll see what happens. I yeah. mean, it may be his last day of office that he gives the pardon, but he can certainly give a pardon. Yeah. And my and, and one of my rants, one of my 
uh, one of my drum beats is that I want more focus on sort of the apparatus and not just on Trump and also not just on the Mueller investigation because I think this is so very different from the Nixon context in so many ways. Any, anything else on that or do you want to cover something else? I know I'm ready to go on to the next thing because I don't really have anything else on that. Michael Bloomberg is willing to spend $500 million of his own money to stop Trump. Now, we don't know whether he's running or not, but he's going to put $500 million, that's a lot of money, into the campaign because he believes that Trump is really bad for America. So, so uh, do you know Michael Bloomberg? Do you have his number? I, I actually have met him once. That's it. So <laughs> if you have a chance to talk to the man. Okay, I'm not saying I'm not going to do something so crass as like give him my number because I got I got a bridge to sell him. But but I right. I do hope that he will spend some of that resource on building pro democracy apparatus, not only paying Facebook and NBC and NBC ad sellers on uh, for ads for a campaign that'll be over in 2020, but figuring out how to build networks, how to support organizations like Talk Media News, uh, like Free Speech TV, heck, like the Tom Hartman Show, figuring out how to build nonprofits that will continue a pro democracy drumbeat over time. Yeah. We don't know if he's going to do that. I know. No, <laughs> this is why I'm saying. This is why I'm lobbying you. We got to go to the fancy parties and say, Michael, you know, don't just give right. all your money to whoever took Les Moonves' job. Give some of your money to some gifts that'll keep on giving. Well, I don't disagree with that, but we'll see if he will do any of that. Okay, the vice president is in Poland now. This is a conference on how to stop what's going on in the Middle East. But um, what we don't know is if. The fact, first of all, a lot of people haven't, a lot of countries haven't shown up in Poland for this meeting. Uh, secondly, Poland is co-sponsoring it with the United States. Uh, the president, uh, the vice president is in Poland. And if you look at the White House events, I always think that the vice president is the one that deals with international issues. Now, it hmm. is true that the president is meeting with the president of Colombia. That's true. And they're talking about drug interdiction and that kind of stuff. Okay, that's true. But the fact is the vice president usually attends these conferences. He's usually the one who does the foreign affairs kind of things. And, and I find that very interesting. Yeah, but, and if you were going to speculate, maybe you decide as your role not to speculate. Any, any final word on why you think that is? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got like four ideas. But more importantly, what okay. I want to do is say thank you so much, Ellen Ratner, for being with thank us. You. You're a champ. I've been telling you how much I love Harry's products for years. I won't shave with anything else. Their close shave and smooth, comfortable glide is amazing. And Harry's delivers right to your door at a price your wallet will love, too. Harry's doesn't do gimmicks. You know, no vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. Who needs that stuff? Harry's gives you a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades, all at a fair price. Replacement cartridges are just $2 each half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. And Harry's Blades come with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love your shave or get a full refund. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of the Tom Hartman program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Go to harrys.com today and use the code TOM to claim your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. That's harrys.com, code TOM. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Michael from Imperial Beach, California. When we were talking about wealth inequality, what a great place to call from. We're talking about democracy than a place called Imperial Beach. Go ahead. 
hey, Jefferson, it's a tricky situation here for us poor people. I wanted to remind everybody again what Hank Paulson told us in 2008. He said, if we don't bail out these banks, the whole world economy could fail. Now, that's a shocking statement. Tom told me once, it's not the 1% that's the problem. The bottom end of the 1% are brain surgeons, high-end lawyers, etc. You know, it's the point zero 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 one percent who are the problem. You told us once, you started off in a New York law firm, buck fifty a year, nice, you earned it. So my thoughts to you, Jeff, are now the lawyers, doctors, surgeons, etc. today, professors, you know, who think that they're set for life. If the whole world economy could collapse, like Hank Possum told us, and these lawyers, doctors, professors, etc. think that they're set for life, then just like 1929, you guys, not you, but these guys are going to be left out in the cold just like the rest of the poor. What are your thoughts, Jeff? Appreciate it. Yeah, I heard you say at least a couple of things, Michael. Uh, One was to have more careful and intricate brushes as we paint the picture of economic power. And that if, and if you come to this from a first principle of democracy, which doesn't have to be one's first principle, but that is pretty close to my first principle on public policy matters. The, not the only one, but it's high up there. Then, uh, then the brain surgeon, then heck, LeBron James is not the thing that is ruling the landscape. This is not the landed gentry. This is not the person that is trying to undo the Magna Carta by saying, no, 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 the fiefdom control really is how decisions should be made. We shouldn't like get together and like vote on crap. I should be able to make decisions because I own crap. That's not LeBron James's fault. That's not Madonna's fault. That's not the brain surgeon's fault. That's not the law firm partner's fault. I'm not even really mad at that person, at the, at the true oligarch, at one of the 2,200 billionaires. It's not, it's not an anger. I hope it's not a jealousy. That would come from a place of weakness. The right-wing critique of what they would call the left is that, well, it's really just coming from a place of jealousy. If you come from a place of love, then you root for that kind of success. I am concerned about democracy. I am concerned about the Brandeis principle. I'm trying to figure out how wealth concentration that is extraordinary can lie alongside human beings living decent lives and human beings be able to make decisions. And it seems like it's a really hard thing to do. Lowell, speed round. Go ahead from Salem, Oregon. Hey, Jefferson. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that the way to solve income inequality would be to have a guaranteed job by the government that sets a minimum wage floor and a minimum set of benefits, and then have a 401k guaranteed subsidy that's based on your income, so you get more of a subsidy the lower you are on the income scale. Lowell, thank you so much for the call. Speed round. Rob, listening on TuneIn. Mesa, Arizona. Yes, hey, I have family quick. in Mesa. Yes. Hey, real quick. The government already can see who's on a program for food stamps or whatnot, and the government can already see who employs who. So basically, when business files their taxes, they should be penalized if the person they employ is not paid enough and then they qualify for some of these services, because the government can already see all that. So when a business submits their taxes and sees that half their employees are are on some sort of government program, the government should penalize them right away. They can do that tomorrow because they can see all that information. One debate that's happened in a few states is whether uh, publicly traded corporations' tax returns should be public. Do you think that information needs to be more broadly shared, or do you think it's enough just for the taxing agents to know it? Well, I would draw the line that if you are a company that receives government funding in some way, you definitely have to have open books. So the military and all those people who receive government funds, 
absolutely they should be audited. They should be under the uh, Freedom of Information Act from the public. Yeah. Just so they can say, hey, you're receiving taxpayer money. You need to be accountable to the public directly. Rob, um, as far as that other option, I don't quite have an opinion on that one. Understood. Rob, thank you so much. Milton, Chicago, Illinois, winning the award for most patients. Speak your piece. <clears throat> All right. Thank you for taking my call, Monitor. I'm a Vietnam veteran, and what I've seen in my own country, I was born and raised in the United States, greatest country in the world. But we are headed for a definitely crash because... The disparity between wealth and the poor is insurmountable, and the 21 trillion deficit that we're talking about carrying, that's ridiculous. Whoever the candidate is, they have to address the disparity between the rich and the poor. Otherwise, we're doomed. And I'm going to say this. Rome lasted a thousand years. We lasted 300. We headed the wrong way. All our policies and everything are headed the wrong way. Milton, I couldn't have said it better. I want to say thank you so much for calling. Milton made the case that we are in a precarious circumstance with a, with a vanishing middle class. The question we raised, the big question today, was should wealth inequality be at the top of the list or near the top of the list for presidential candidates in 2020? Nearly all of you either said or implied that absolutely indeed it should. And you had marvelous thoughts on the subject, creative thoughts on the subject. We talked about multiple different structures for whether it was the seven tier or whether it was the indexing, the highest tax rate. This was Tom's idea with the federal minimum wage. The idea that to try to get the brain surgeon a little bit thinking about what it's like to, to be the person at the lower end. Ruth talking about greed is the problem. Genevieve indexing the universal basic income. The case that nonprofits aren't enough. The jobs guarantee suggests from Salem, co-ops from Martina and Consuelo. What I want to say is thank you to you. Thank you to people who put on the show. You're the coalition of the benevolent irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is Tom Hartman's show. I'll be back tomorrow. And very grateful I get to be. We'll be back. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.